0: what would motivate a young person to willingly choose to go to war it is a question studied by historians creatively portrayed on stage and on film and is the question that plagues the department of defense as it struggles to reach recruitment goals today we continue to use words that motivated generations of warfighters in the past like patriotism honor and duty But these were not just buzzwords for our country during World War I and World War II. They were descriptors of character, a rite of passage into manhood, and for many, traits to be measured by. Today, with institutional trust at a historic low, those same words invoke political division and confusion, with many wondering if it's still a noble thing to die for one's country. If we're going to truly understand the complexity of why we find ourselves in a recruitment crisis, we must understand what these words really meant in the context of how and when they were used. With this understanding, perhaps we can decide if they are still key motivators for today's generation. If they are not, then we have bigger issues to address and the DOD is back to the drawing board for advertising to the youngest generation. I'm Corey Weathers, you're listening to Military Culture Shift, a limited series podcast on the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. While writing Military Culture Shift, I found military historian Dr. Edward Guterres, who studied the values of honor and duty for specifically the World War I doughboys, who were later labeled as the Lost Generation. I couldn't resist interviewing him to further the conversation on what has changed in our country since World War I. The Lost Generation was born after the Industrial Revolution and fought in World War I. The youngest of this generation also served in World War II as well. Nicknamed by writer Gertrude Stein, the generation's name described the disoriented, wandering spirit of veterans who survived World War I only to return to a completely different American culture with me today i have dr edward guterres i'm hoping i'm saying that right edward he is the director of the center for military history and grand strategy at hillsdale college i'm so so excited to talk with you edward because um i in writing military culture shift became fascinated to my surprise, with military history, I was not a history student growing up. It was not something that I um, leaned into, especially military history. But when it really came to understanding our story, I just um, really got lost in it. And I came across your work specifically on World War One. So I'm so excited for you to um, join this conversation. There's so much that we're going to talk about. We had great conversation even before recording. Um, so I know this is going to be enlightening. So thank you so much, Edward, for joining.
1: Oh, it's it's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, I would love, um, for you to share a little bit about your story, because I, th- I have a feeling it's a really unique story of how you got interested in, especially military history to begin with. So do you mind just sharing a little bit of your background, your story and how you got to this place now where you're an assistant professor there at the Department of History?
1: Oh sure, I, I think to sum it up, uh, uh, the ancient Greek writer Hesiod uh, said, "Life is stasis," uh, which means struggle. And I certainly believe in that. Uh, I learned that from an early age that that was true. So then, my whole uh, journey, my whole quest, has been trying to understand that properly, uh, because when you, if you, if you accept that, and which you have to, uh, you, you then are able to face it better. And I think again, it's if, if. It comes down to explaining versus acceptance, and I think that's a theme that you and I, we've talked about in the past, and that what your great work is trying to do, and mine as well, and so many others is trying to uh, differentiate that, because I think modernity is very keen on trying to explain things uh, versus acceptance. Uh, So that's really what I'm a student of and what I've been my whole life. So,
0: being a student of, I love the that phrase. Life is struggle. Um, is that why specifically military warfare was of interest to you, or have you always loved history?
1: Well, I, I, yeah. So, as as I did again, just from my own upbringing um, uh, and just kind of understanding. So, so my family and my my father in particular grew up in in Colombia. What was called La Violencia, the violence. And so again, it just was always a matter of I I suppose uh we could nothing in life is monocausal, but there was certainly a lot of interest in being pulled too, uh, as uh most young men. Just again, that, that stasis, that struggle, and trying to understand and in, in war and strategy uh are are those avenues. So and I think history for me uh has always been Uh, that vehicle because uh, Cleo, uh, again, as the ancient Greeks called her, the muse of history, is again, it it is the most instructive tool for understanding man. Because what you do is you look back. And by looking back, you get two things, really, which is wisdom and humility. You don't look back. There's only one other choice. You look forward. And when you make that pivot, then you have nothing to compare yourself to. Mm. And then that's when pride and arrogance. And quite frankly, very we already are disordered. Man has fallen, uh, and so you need those anchors. And what history gives you, again, no matter what, if you want to be good at anything, this, as you were saying for your great book, you had to go back. Mm-hmm. You can't just it can't be tabula rasa, clean slate. You need to be a good doctor, to be a good lawyer, uh, to be a good author, to be a good anything. You're going to have to build upon what the greats have done before you. Uh, and that's that's again that's something that has been that's recent in it but it's been a slow burn over the last few centuries certainly in the West but really all all over the globe. So again for me uh, any <laughs> any PhD is going to tell you like oh their 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 study is, is of course the greatest of course because what is a man but his passions? But for me it was always again I think history is being that vehicle for understanding, uh, in particular as well as philosophy and theology for me has uh, really, again, being those vehicles for, again, understanding the stasis, the struggle.
0: Um, I, that resonates so much with me from a psychology perspective, just because in, I feel like I've been thinking about this a lot in the last week. How do I summarize, um, what my personal passion is or what I'm really driven to do? And I really feel like I'm a student of humanity. Like I really love studying human behavior, why we make the choices that we do and, You know, partially because of the psychology background, it's kind of a similar, like you can't, you can't understand a person right now here in the present or their drives or their motivations to even position themselves in a direction or a career like the military that puts you in harm's way without understanding where they came from. And we're taught in psychology to go back generations to look for these patterns, these themes, the way things are passed down, these narratives that are passed down. And so when it came to really studying like what's going on in our military culture now, what's happening in our larger, more broader culture, you really do have to go back and look at all the things that have evolved but also have been passed down. And so I came across your work when I was covering, especially like World War One era, and really what I was looking for, which is um, I think what you were also looking into, and I'd love for you to expand on this, was what motivated, I mean, of course, the draft was going on and a lot of people were pulled in, not by their own choice, but I was really curious about what were the driving motivations of why someone would even sign up to be in the military during that time. You gave this wonderful talk, and I'm gonna paraphrase some of what you were saying. But it was something along the lines of that you have to understand who they were coming in in order to understand who they became. And I loved that. So would you mind sharing a little bit about why World War I? I think you've written a book on this, on the Doughboys of World War I. So why zero in on the Doughboys?
1: Well, I- so uh, first and foremost, it's I, two reasons. It, it's, it's completely fascinating because especially in this country, unfortunately, nobody cares about it because it's sandwiched between the Civil War and World War II. Uh, there was my phone was ringing off the hook during the centenary, which was to 2014 to 2018. But now again, nobody except someone sweet like you is calling me because it's like nobody <laughs> wants to talk about. It's, it's because I knew that was going to happen. It was is nothing like an anniversary to bring it back into people's minds. So I think it was always something that interested me was was the why no one was talking about it. But I what first truly pulled me in was the air warfare dimension having. Uh, several family members being pilots. I, I was always fascinated by flight and the air warfare dimension. Uh, and again, being growing up with Snoopy, uh, and Peanuts. And it, that was one of this kind of hopeless romantic in me, too. It was like really that dimension of again, the, the Red Baron and, and flight and, and the honor code, actually. Uh, while though there was certainly some, uh, uh, Still, again, the war is about putting down the other guys, about killing. Uh, but there was a real interesting uh, honor and duty element and uh, respect there that you saw uh, in in the air warfare, in particular. Uh, in that war, still, uh, I think ultimately too, it was really the crunching of the meeting of the old and new in a way. Uh, and. And the the question I always challenge the students and certainly myself is, did the war make modernity or did modernity make the war? Mm. And I will tell you to go back to your nice point that you're making is modernity created the war. Because my of all the quotes I found, I had 120,000 uh these questionnaires that I found that were really after action reports uh, with the Doughboys when they came right home uh, in 1919. Uh, there was one gentleman, actually, he was a Canadian artillery officer, and he says more or less what you're saying. And, and I saw that pattern forming. And again, we're going back to my, as I said, my really important point about explaining versus accepting. And so what this gentleman said, uh, Connorsby Dawson, this officer, he said that it's not war only makes what is already latent in men. Mm-hmm so the 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 warrior will again will find kind of the honor the duty the warrior will grow but the coward will find cowardice and so again if we take it cuz what we're talking about is exactly what you're saying like i am also a student of human nature so we what we've done is we've taken we've kind of we keep compartmentalizing and labeling these things as war as like, again so if i say like what is life you see how we got to go higher than that we got to go to like, this grand strategic level because if we're just talking about war again what we're really talking about is life Mm-hmm. And so again, we're talking about uh, bad things, uh, but are they really bad? Again, so it's, it's it's how you face them. So it's not what happens to you; it's how you deal with it. Which so that's um, really again what I was trying to get to.
0: When and I'm hearing that. Our, a man's response to trauma. If we're going to call wars, if we're going to experience something that tra- that's traumatic, not only can we learn mm-hmm. what motivates people to come in or sign up for something like that, but also how they come out of that. If right. there is trauma that they experience or suffering, if we use um, life as suffering, right? How we experience suffering. I'm hearing you say that it's really about what we bring into that suffering in the first place determines how we move out of it.
1: Correct. Yeah, correct. Correct. And, and I don't think, again, I think even the, the, the way it's the, moving out of it, I don't know if that's even the right way to, to again, about the acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in your discipline, there's been a move uh, in the positive psychology movement and post-traumatic growth studies to really start to reflect on how, again, this, that very, very laden word of trauma so you see, I, it, it's, it's it, it, in World War One. We went into that war again for since the dawn of man. War is something that can be ennobling. It's brutal. As, Sher, mm-hmm. as Sherman Williams comes to Sherman said, and this is why so many of the Doughboys quoted uh, General Sherman from the Civil War. War is hell. Uh, but everyone always, everyone always quotes just that. Just quote that, Corey, mm-hmm. and see people cherry pick that. But what Sherman said right after that is, and if it comes, I'm here. Mm. So you see again, so here's one who, who gave the hard hand of war and was so instrumental in winning, along with Grant, the Civil War and defeating the Confederacy. Uh, it, it, that's, that, that's the important point. So you have coming into World War One this really, this pivot point that had already been building towards that already, though, within the 1800s and even before that. Again, it's worth, see, because what we need to, to be talking about is, I think it's, it, we, we got to be careful about labeling something as defining it as being evil or bad or, or good or something of that nature because ultimately, see, again, we're back to life is a struggle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, again, lo- loss, death, uh, uh, if, uh, whether it be financial or, or any physical, anything, uh, that's, that's what it comes down to. And I think what's the real key is that threshold is so lower now
0: mm-hmm.
1: because we just don't preach virtue and resilience mm-hmm. anymore or it's only preached in a very small corridor.
0: Do you feel that the Doughboys or the World War One era had more of that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because again, it's, it's, it's nature. Seneca, the ancient Roman philosopher Seneca said it best when he's talking about virtue, he says, we're born for it, but not with it. Mm. So first and foremost, again, you're talking about nature and nurture. And it's, it's again, how you define what, man is and what what the subject what what is he made of and what what's what's he able to endure and what's the whole point see we're into the big questions here again what what's the point and why are we here but also the nurturing as seneca says that, you, that it, things need to become habitual and need to be trained and so if you have a society that instantly is labeling something as traumatic or bad or evil or broken then you're going to create a society that accepts that versus one that's able to say, okay, we need fortitude, need resilience, and we have this. So that's, that's really the key is that the doughboys, and it's not to say there wasn't some, like men throughout history, there's, there's obviously, as you well know with your specialty, that uh, everyone's unique. Uh, and that, so But the important point is if someone experiences one thing versus someone else, I've have thousands there's thousands and upon thousands of doughboys, combat veterans, who saw very, very intense combat. <laughs> Again, that was hell, but I'm glad I did it. Made me a man. It was my mm-hmm. duty, it was my honor. Even the ones that were that were drafted, I I was I gladly answered the call. Uh but the problem is those veterans. They are the voices we don't hear. We hear the lost generation. We hear the. It's always the rather than the deserving voices. It's always the ones that are the most creative or the loudest. So we 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 define the war now through the Hemingway, uh, the the Fitzgerald again, the lost generation, or just that narrative that we've created and constructed, which is it was uh, it was a horrible conflict. It was destructive. It was this. It was that. Uh, and and it, again as this kind of negative dark. Uh, which is again, was how we label all wars. So I think again, you can kind of see the point is that we've, we've pivoted in our understanding of war, but again, of what is life.
0: Well, and this is what really stood out to me about this generation or this era and why I thought it was so important to cover and obviously why you thought it was so important to really study is if we're going to talk about, which I definitely think we in just a minute need to talk about where we are today and what's evolved, but you know, when I looked back and, and I was really trying to answer the question that I was often getting from military leaders today, which is what, what are the driving motivations of the current generation, especially millennial and Gen Z. And, you know, and of course in the military, we throw around these words of honor, duty, sacrifice, patriotism and all that. But every time I would come across those words, I'm like, something has changed. Those words don't mean today what they meant before. And it seemed like, please, you know, shed some light on this, but um it just was a code to live by. And so you referenced a moment where you were going through the museum with um looking at artifacts from the Titanic oh, yeah. as being like this key moment. So would you mind sharing that? Because I think that um, it relates to this whole idea of it being infiltrated in the culture.
1: Sure. So I, I grew up believing that narrative. Uh, So it's just we're saturated with it. It's on so many uh, syllabi and and just how so many will approach the war. Uh, Again, directors film directors are are the the historians of, of modernity. So the, the movies, if you just think of the movies of the war, with the exception of 1917, which recently uh, came out, which is, was a very good a film about the Great War. But I, I grew up kind of believing that. But then it was what had happened is, is and I, when I really dug into it, and it was the soldiers themselves, as I said, over 120,000 doughboys. And I realized, woo. I was wrong. So it was that one moment. Yeah, so I I was very really blessed. I had a uh Harry Frank Guggenheim um foundation. I was a, a fellow, I was I received a grant, and I was in the World War One Museum, which is in Kansas City. And across the street uh is this fabulous old uh train station. Uh and it has that kind of neo classical architecture, huge, beautiful building. And in the basement they it's just I don't believe in coincidence. There was a, uh, a a Titanic anniversary. It was 2012, so it was the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And I'm going through the the uh, really fabulous uh, uh, exhibition, and at the very end there was a quote there, and I'm embarrassed to say, uh, as I've said many times, I had forgotten that uh, a Guggenheim uh, was on was on the boat. And when she went down and they had this quote on the wall that said, we're dressed in our best and prepared to go down like gentlemen. And so I really dug into and studied the sinking of the Titanic, because I think, again, as far as quotes kind of representing an era that is so very true, uh, that Guggenheim and his valet uh, were in their white tie and they died. And it's important to note how orderly that the majority of men face that, and women against in general. So many of the engineers and and the electricians they kept her afloat for an extra 90 minutes. They all drowned down in the in the in below decks. Uh, the the orchestra did indeed keep playing until she went down. So you have this sense again, to really talking about see because what, what we were talking about is love and death. And it's where you direct your love and how you embrace death. And those are so important because what you're talking about, I wouldn't even say, I don't want to pin anything on the modern generations or so to speak, because I've seen it everywhere. And I've, again, this is across cultures, across countries, race, everything. It, it doesn't age, it doesn't really matter. I think if we were to pinpoint it, I, w- I would blame it on three things, godlessness, technology, and materialism. Mm-hmm. And so if I just could briefly just unpack those I'll be as small yes. as possible, I think. So godlessness, first and foremost, is once you abandon God, you become God. So Dr. Kissinger wrote a great book on leadership recently. And he really concludes by saying, uh, kind of going what you were talking about top down with virtue, uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger says the same thing. that you, you need, you need, He says you need something at some level in society to come together. So there's got to be something to bind it. The best for that is an absolute. Because if you don't have an absolute, you're gonna pivot again away to picking where do I answer the big questions of what is what is virtue? What is honor? Where does it come from? Again, like what's under what criteria are you measuring it, and where does it come from? So that's what you're again. So you're beating, you have to beat that sense of pride we all have. And if you don't have an absolute, That makes it extremely, extremely difficult to define who you are and just, again, the big questions. The second is technology. Specifically, technology has always been an issue, but it's a a tool. Technology has always been throughout history of man a tool. I can use any technology to better mankind or to destroy it. The big pivot that I've seen in my reflection in particular is the cyberspace, we could just call it. So that's the internet, uh, social media and all of that, and cell phones. Mm Mm-hmm uh because you again you just just open the newspaper open the wall street journal any day and this is what i'm saying it's not just something in the west or in our country everywhere around the world you're going to see people glued to that device that are living in this false world and again to your discipline but in the hard sciences we are rewiring our neurological pathways and it also as i said i think going back to that godlessness is really what you're talking about, I mean think about it. Do does it someone really care what I had for dinner? Or if when I'm taking a selfie, just that whole term, I'm taking a selfie, just think about it, Corey. I'm taking a selfie at the Eiffel Tower, at Notre Dame Cathedral, or anywhere. What the selfie says is I am more important than the event. Mm-hmm. So it's not again, it's not just being there in the beauty of the Sistine Chapel or the Great Wall of China. It's here I am and here I am and see it. So it's it's this it's really it's this exhibitionism. So you can see how that ties into the godlessness. And lastly is materialism, which again it's this trifecta because Marxism in particular is what started this in the eighteen hundreds, but it's this project that started with the Enlightenment, which is the turn to the subject. They see everything. If I if if I don't have that spiritual guidance, if I don't have that the metaphysic, the again the the absolute concepts that guided man throughout his history, then I'm going to focus on everything here, and that might be again the cell phone or just everything that has matter. So if there's if you if I truly believe there's nothing, or I don't have the kind of the really solid doctrinal concepts of Absolute with religion, then I'm going to pivot down. Mm -hmm. And so you see again, it's where I'm directing my love. And see that again, we're back to as I as I stressed our whole wonderful conversation about those choices about how we face stasis. We either explain it or we accept it. And that's going to all that. The answer to that question hinges on, as I said, those three key understandings of why I think we're we're as you're rightly saying. And why your work is so important is we're in, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And you can either shrug that off and keep trying to, again, explain, or you can accept it. And you have to then say, okay, well, why, why did we get here in this way? And I'm not trying again. I think it's really important. To, again, historians are certainly labeled as being nostalgic or romantic. I am not one to, to tell you that there hasn't been. I mean, man is fallen again, and we've, we've done a lot of terrible things throughout history. But what I do see, as you rightly are saying, there's a very large difference, again, in how individuals, why they serve, why they do what they do. And it's not just, again, the military. We can't point all the fingers at the military. The important thing is the military is an extension of the society that it comes from, just like medical care or the White House or uh, Congress or uh, the education system, all of it. It, it doesn't matter. Again, I remember once I was on a staff ride and a colonel in 06 was lamenting just to what you're talking about. And he, we got into this big talk with all the other officers and we were saying just that is that we came to that conclusion. And then I was really stressing that point is that we can't expect the military to somehow be above it mm-hmm. when our own society is not like that. If you're asking what, 1% that served in Iraq and Afghanistan to then somehow uh not react or, or again, or just just to be kind of immune to that, so you see that's my whole point is we've divorced war from society so completely, and it's yeah. not the warrior's fault, it's society's fault
0: no i I love that perspective so much, and a lot of what I was trying to trace throughout the shifts that have happened in the culture, especially since 9-11, was really what globally we were going through as far as the impact of social media and the internet shifting. And I, I mean, even going back, even before that, there's just all these subtle shifts in our society of closing in and becoming more and more isolated into their homes. I took a lot of those shifts that I was happening and then looked at how does that impact the subculture of the military. But I love your perspective on you know how do you shift change um, evolve something when it's only one percent of the greater culture So, Um, I kind of want to ask you what you think about that (laughs) because you know, like it sounds like, well, we can't do anything, but like surely there is a, um, how do we lead from where we are and the influence that we have personally? So I'm kind of jumping probably to what I would ask you towards the end, but. What are your thoughts on the ability or our maybe personal ability to shift that somehow?
1: Well, again, I I can never, I think it's important that we live in a society too that loves to pull down, but never offer a counterpoint. I think if you're going to attack the position, you need to offer that position. So it's a great question. And um, first and foremost, we need to go back to a way of cultivating virtue. And again, it, it, the problem is, as you and I have been talking, as I've said, just with the godlessness technology and materialism, so I, for one, would argue that it's we're fighting a rearguard action. So for example, again, it's Pandora's jar, to make another Greek reference. Once you've let something out, it's very difficult then to put it away without actually force and oppression, so to speak, because you you have to So it's a a tall order, but the the most important thing is is having a culture that is much more geared towards understanding and wisdom. And wisdom, again, is only gleaned from the past, from your forefathers, from from tradition. Uh, It's ethics versus politics. Life should be ethics and then politics much later, but we've inverted that. It's right versus good. And so we live in a society, again, it's my right to do X. So they have no conception of the do, as St. Thomas Aquinas would call it. And so there's, that's, it's a very, again, ancient and medieval kind of mindset to say something, because you're going back to your great points about honor and duty. And so everyone, again, if we have a, a culture and a society that believes I'm doing this or I'm expected to or I receive this because it's my right versus is it good? The one example that for you and I, let's look at our generation. You and I grew up when marijuana was illegal. Now, why why would someone not do it? So you have to say it's immoral. It's versus is it the law? So now we have a, a society which half the country now it's legal, and you see how that dilutes it because if we're if you're basing everything on quote unquote rights. You can see how those change very, very quickly. So we're back to my most important point about absolutes. Absolutes have to govern man. You need something above just the the the, the, the way times change, because it can change so rapidly. Because I could again, I could easily, with that argument, Corey, I could say, oh, it wasn't the Nazis' fault; they were just a product of their time. You see, so because again, I say, like, well, they they didn't get they didn't understand because they're not as advanced or as sophisticated as we were. <laughs> so, so it's, you see that like that that's the line of argument we have today, because well, we're gonna have we're gonna be even rights are gonna get even better. We're gonna develop even better, and so to your to your great point with that nice book that The Calling of the American Mind, that was a co-offered, I remember, by a, a, a lawyer or some, and, and uh, you're disciplined again, a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the wedding you kind of see of those two. That, see You need both is, is the point too. You need, you need ethics and you need politics. You need the laws because again, man is, life is struggle. People are looking for the majority of man throughout history. And again, not just in America, just in general, how do I get from A to B as quickly as possible? Mm -hmm. And so, again, I keep quoting the ancients, but you see, again, as a historian, uh, this is what Cicero said, that life is uh, the choice between the ethical versus the expedient. And so, again, it's the longer, harder road, which is the good road. That's the ethical road that, that Cicero is talking about. Then I can do the expedient. How do I get, again, and as you said, think about it, we are in a culture, It just give it to me now, bam, 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 15-second videos, mm-hmm. swish, 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 it's speed, it's speed, it's now, it's now, it's now, it's now. There is no time to think. There's So we, to answer again your immensely important question is I, the only way to do that is to slow down. we got to take our foot off the accelerator and start concentrating on what made man, us, again, globally, great which is the study of the past and really having a society that cultivates virtue, that cultivates honor, and not to make them dirty words, but you see it's such a tall order because we're going back to, again, as I said, my kind of trinity, which is that godlessness technology and materialism. Those are so ingrained within our DNA now that it's a tall order, but the only way that comes from again that has to come from society the same thing as i said with the military with anyone else it's the, we can't expect the president or any leader to somehow be above that i mean virtue is as as you absolutely said it's top down but every single country throughout history receives the leader they deserve because it's from that society so again you can see that ultimately it's got to be bottom up. It comes from both directions, but it has to be cultivated from our society. So it's a, it's a huge problem. I think it can be done, but that's the pivot that must happen.
0: Well, in my, this is a lofty dream, but I'm, I'm hoping that Gen Z will, consider that being their, their thing worth fighting for and their thing worth championing. I think they're definitely coming back and seeing the, the limitations of technology, even though they're embracing lots of things like virt- the virtual world and all that, there's a, a part of them that's coming back and saying, like, we're missing human connection and that technology can't be the answer for everything. Yeah, um, right. Maybe as a metaphor, I can share what happened to me this morning. I was taking my son to school And I was sharing with him. um, I was sharing with him about a friend of mine who reached out to me, and she was going through like this parental turmoil because yesterday her son punched another kid (laughs) at school, and um, and I'm laughing because. Last year, my son punched a kid at school and we had to go through that. And we had to talk about it and whatever. And, and I was humorously um, trying to lighten the mood because I, I mean, as parents, um, I think we go through situations like that and assume it says something about us and maybe partially it does, but how we handle that I think is so important and such a great opportunity for everybody to grow through something and redefine some of the things I think we're even talking about right now. But um, I was lightheartedly messaging my friend to say, hey, if it makes you feel any better, my kid punched a a kid at school last year and now he's running for student president. (laughs) So there's a way to evolve from here. But I was talking to my son about that this morning and we had this whole interesting conversation. He's in high school, so he's a younger Gen Z, but we were having this conversation about how the school systems handle situations like that. I said to him, you know, I think that The school as a whole has to decide what what are those values, what are the ethics, what do we stand for? And if everybody were in agreement, everything from students all the way up to staff, up to the principal, up to the district, that this is who we are, this is what we believe in, these are the values that are important to us, and you're agreeing by coming to this school that you also value those things. We're seeing in some pockets of, of some districts in the country where students are policing themselves because they so value what that environment stands for and what's important to them and how they treat each other. It just brought me to this place of, I don't know if we have those um, agreed upon values where, to your point, everybody is thinking about what their personal rights are, even down to when we talk about the motivation of military today. One of the thing, the advertisement for military recruiters is come join the military where you can, where you can find a sense of purpose, like as if this is a, a self-purpose path for you and that's what the job is. So I'm not sure, I, maybe that's a wrong metaphor, but it's just kind of my thinking on we don't have shared values as much anymore.
1: So this is, as I was saying, I was quoting Dr. Kissinger. So one big problem is you've used that label. And again, it's not your fault. We continually love, we love labels. And by labeling generations, we are literally divorcing ourselves from each other. Mm -hmm. So think about the 20th century. It was the first time again in history where we put a definitive label on every decade. Mm. That is a very big problem. The 20s were this, the 30s were that, the 40s were this, the 60s were this, the 70s were that. And then all of a sudden you get, you obviously meant, and I know for you, for us, and for so many who witnessed it, that 9-11 is seared into our retina on that very, very difficult day. But the bigger one is the Cold War. Mm. That in 89, when the, when the wall fell in 89, 90, there was this sense of euphoria that we won. Democracy defeated communism, but I, I think we really lost the Cold War because it was there. If you think about that pivot that happened, as you were saying, the 90s in particular, obviously very different from the 80s. But you're starting to kind of see the problem is, again, the issue is old equals stale. Great example again. Here, go, here I go with the ancients again. But ancient Romans had death masks on their doorway of their dead uh, relatives. So every day I'd walk out of the door and say, all right, great grandpa, got honor you got to hold it up. I got to look, see again, you see, I'm looking back. So this is something, again, if you look at scripture in Genesis, it's the binding that, that between Abraham and Isaac, what binds the generations? That is so important. Now, what does? What binds the generations? Again, if it's not that, as, as Dr. Kissinger is saying, as I was mentioning earlier, it's got to be the absolute. There has to be something that binds us together. Mm. And now it's always again. You can see the difference. What's it's in the again in in the ancient medieval mind? What I would want something traditional. What's old? Because old is proven. New is unproven. Think of how different that is now. What phone do you have? Oh, you got an you got an i you got the the 6? Oh, like oh, that did you listen to that song? Ah, that was so yesterday. We're, see see how see how ingrained we are to think like that. So one of the again the most important things we need to do is get rid of all of this gen labeling.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I feel super convicted <laughs> about it, but I, I really do. Cause I, you answered a question that I was going to ask you coming from like a devil's advocate perspective of, you know, what if somebody is listening right now and they're saying, well, you're just part of a previous generation that has your view and you're not, you know, um, rolling with, you know, what's happening now, whatever somebody might say. And I think you answered that, um, so, so wisely and you're right. I can see how, and I'm, and I am saying, right. now that i'm going to shift my language because by saying what i said it positions this younger generation to fix everything and for me as an older generation to sit back and enables me to do less when really there should be more wisdom and i will say there's still so much room for wisdom and mentoring people still want mentoring and There's wisdom and I can hear you also saying that's part of honoring the past. But I I do feel like what we are both saying is we've got to close the gaps between all of them, that we've got to find common language, common motivation, um, common ability to work together and see each other's value. That is for sure the biggest message that I feel like is, for me at least, the most important thing is to bring people together.
1: Exactly, because again, it's just it's, see, this is a slippery slope, and and see, we see how we're back to the most important fundamentals. As I said, I would challenge anyone to then reflect on, okay, well, what binds us then? Because that's that's the key issue, because mm-hmm. it's going to get worse as and we're in such a very very uh, unstable time in the sense with artificial intelligence and just technology is getting more and more powerful. Well, again, how do you govern that? Mm -hmm. We're back to the same thing, ethics versus politics. I can make all the laws in the world, but if I don't have ethics, then – and and again, where are you getting your ethics from? Mm -hmm. Under what source? What is the font of your code of ethics? Now, if that keeps changing every quote-unquote generation, and we're back to what – we'll have a generation double A, double B, or whatever it might be, you see, there's where the, the binding is not happening. Mm-hmm. And that is a the biggest issue right there. Is we all, as I said, any ancient or medieval is going to be able to relate to their grandfather or their great grandfather.
0: Especially with one percent serving, where people are more and more disconnected from the warrior culture. Yes. Whereas before, people exactly. knew a grandfather, knew an uncle, a brother, someone who served. Um, and I think with the time that we have left, I just want to reflect on that for a second. We you've talked, we talked previously um, before this call. We talked about just suffering and detachment from the warrior culture and that not necessarily being taught in the everyday life. Um, and so can you share a little bit about how you've seen that evolve? We've as far as not just suffering, but being willing to embrace being maybe a warrior or I mean, you said in the very beginning, talking about, um, I think you were referencing just men in particular, leaning into or being pulled towards war or suffering or strategy, that sort of thing, as being more of an everyday thing than I I feel like we're experiencing today.
1: Oh, sure. I I think that, again, if we just use your great analogy with your son, uh, where I went to school when I was his age, the boy's bathroom was a war zone. (laughs) (laughs) When you went to the boy's bathroom, you're going to get jumped. (laughs) Uh, now some could say, see, so see, see, again, you see how we're back to, we're at the strategic level here because then you have to say, well, is that a good or bad thing? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants, everybody wants the golden road, Mm -hmm. of course. But at the same time, see how we're, again, we're back to the explanation versus the acceptance. And then it's a matter of, okay, what are you going to do about it? So I can say, well, again, boys, boys, boys fight. Everyone fights though. And so then it's a matter, again, of how you see we're back to those really important fundamentals of the big questions. What is life? What's the point? What? Why are we here? And those if you can't answer those, as you said, as you nicely started this, as you and I were both agreeing, we're students of human nature. Uh, but those again, those those questions have to be answered with with. Uh, with the past, with, with, because, if again, the, the issue here is if you take the modern viewpoint that we're somehow progressing and getting better and better, it really then becomes a question of why even bother? Why even bother? Because, well, well, well I'm going to be outdated uh, in 10 years so, yeah. or even less than that. So why, again, Like, what's the point? So it's, that's, it's a very – it's an impossible position to hold because it just implodes upon itself. So I, I, again, I think that the the kind of it, it all kind of again stems back to the really the important of the, the big lessons of of life, which is facing what life is. And as I started with Hesiod, I think it is it's stasis. And once you accept that, you're going to realize that man was built to endure, and he's built to suffer. Uh, and that's just life. I mean, that's that's part of the challenge. Because if you don't have any challenge, then you, you're never tested, and it's uh, it life's very different. Uh, I could give you one good reference: so Christine de Pizan. She was probably the first kind of a lot of people like to say she's the first modern writer, but she was writing uh, uh, during the time of the Hundred Years' War against France and and England. And she writes uh, so much. She wrote for women of guidebooks, but also just men. She wrote on chivalry. She was she was brilliant polymath. And she was really saying very much what I'm saying too. And she, she was saying, ladies, we're in the time of war, and this is an immense time in France of suffering. It was called the Chevalier. So you have much like Ukraine. Ukrainians are enduring that you, the war zone is the front line. It's your front door. And so she's writing and telling these women, it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's how you deal with it. So you see, she's taking that absolute standard that again, we have to take because otherwise the, the alternative is it becomes situational. Well, then there's, okay, now I, I can't handle this because this happened or well, it's just, it depends on, on this situation. It's not writing it off suffering or, 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 uh, or anything of again, the badness of life, but it's again, it's so important to understand how you face that. And how you face it is going to be determined, again, by those high-level questions to answering. What's your worldview? How you, again, how you approach life is going to approach how I face war, how I face death, how I face going into the boys' bathroom when I'm your son's age. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really the important point.
0: Well, I think this is important for everybody listening, especially if you are parents, if you are... Um, I mean really if you're just taking a look at your own life and going through whatever struggle you're going through right now, whatever you're facing, I think it is asking ourselves those hard questions. And then as parents, what is it that we believe as parents and how are we instructing them with that common understanding of how do we move through suffering? Um when I'm working with people, I think of life and I think our of our individual lives almost like a novel that's being written. And so when when suffering happens and it's going to happen, sometimes it's a whole separate chapter, but that doesn't mean you know we can skip that chapter doesn't mean that we can erase that chapter it's just part of our story and chapter yeah. seven doesn't happen the way that it happens without chapter three being a part of how you got there yeah. and so it's yeah, i yeah. think when you use that word embrace like embrace the suffering embrace that it's part of our story it's a part of um, being human and i hear you saying we have to decide what we believe about suffering and believe about um, God and technology and uh, materialism and all of that, in order to move through it with wisdom, but move through it with maturity, um, so that we do have something. I think to pass down. Um, I think in closing, my last question for you: you are teaching. We're not going to give a label, so you're going to you're teaching young young people, <laughs> and right. um, and having the chance to really inspire you know people who are in this world and living through all of this i mean this is a this is a generation who came up in the in technology whereas i think you're of my generation where we didn't have that in our um childhood oh, okay. maybe in our adolescence so how are you teaching these kids these students to go out into the world and what are you seeing their reaction being
1: well again it's 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 it comes down to a question of caring uh, it's as I tell uh, any student uh, if if you don't care, you can't expect me to mm. uh so that's really the important point is that uh, the conversation we just had, I'm sure there's going to be lots who disagree with that and uh but a lot who I hope will would agree and and would read your work and and would embrace that and start to reflect on maybe I need to rethink uh and refocus the lens on what's really important. So I think the best way to answer your great question is, again, a story from antiquity. So in the Iliad uh, of Homer, on the very end, Achilles and Priam are talking everything we just talked about. And Priam is devastated because his son Hector is, is, has died, not to mention so many other the Trojans. And Achilles has this great rhyme where he says he tells the story about Niobe. Uh, and we don't have to get into the mythology, but the point is he says Niobe still ate. So his big point, Achilles is really saying exactly what you and I have been saying and what I started this with is when you look back, you realize (laughs) that men and women throughout history have suffered a lot more than you have. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that, again, you see how that's the point. If I don't do that, I have nothing to compare myself to. So that's the most important point. You see, again, you can't, you bring the horse to the well, but you can't force him to drink. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing again, we, we we're not into it's such a modern idea to say I am not the agent of my actions. I was tricked i was duped by the I government i appreciate
0: you saying that, that because when i looked throughout history and how it impacted and moved people i had that same thought but i felt like am i even allowed to say that, <laughs> that
1: no I, of it, course it, you're not no of course of course you're not Corey. See, that's the problem because we've taken that away see we're back to the right versus the good because i i can think about the culture we live in it's so very much rewarded to point the figure and say i'm not where i'm supposed to be because it's your fault, or it's this or that. And it's not that we want to take away anyone's journey, but we have to very much remember every action is a moral action. That's a very tall order that St. Thomas Aquinas sets for us. And so many, again men, from the, the, again, men and women from the past, but back to that, that lesson that Achilles is trying to teach Priam. This happened, and even worse happened, to someone else. So you see what it does is it doesn't make you feel like we do today. Everybody gets a trophy. Yeah. Like No, there's individuals that have endured a heck of a lot worse than you have. And maybe they've got something to teach you. But you see, that's the most important thing that we also have the problem with. To your great point, I can and people can listen again to this, our our wonderful podcast here. And God willing, they'll. Nod their heads and go. You know what? That's that's a great point. Or they might just say, "That's rubbish. There's nothing you can do about it." So they, that's the that really problem is again. We're back to the Dr. Kissinger's point. What what's going to bind us? What we need something, and so we need to be cultivating a culture that which which again it wasn't. It, it, this is the way life has always been until very recently, as I said. Uh certainly again the, the real problem is kind of that turn of the century as I was stressing. Modernity made the Great War, uh more than the war made modernity. Because you see again, there it is. It's the war's fault. Mm-hmm. It's the war's fault that I that because that, that, of this because of X, Y, and Z. Aha. But if you look at the art, you look at the literature, you look at the cultural turn before nineteen fourteen, we're already heading in that direction. Yeah. So we're back to that great I uh, you know that fundamental point which you kindly brought up that I think if if you were to take away one thing from my first book on the doughboys which would be that it's that wonderful quote by Connie B Dawson that again war just makes latent what a man already it, what he is you know he's he's already forged going in. And so that's what we need to really work on is how is tempering ourselves in a lot stronger way.
0: People don't realize what they have. They bitch about it. And then nowadays, I am so upset that the things we did, and the things we fought for, and the boys that died for it, it's all gone down the drain. Our country's gone to hell in a handbasket. We haven't got the country we had when I was raised, not at all. Nobody will have the fun I had. Nobody will have the opportunity I had. It's It's just not the same. That's not what I was, that's not what they died for. While studying the lost generation, I spent hours trying to find footage of World War I veterans talking about why they willingly signed up for war. Of those i could find their answer was simply that they wanted to go many of them making their decision before their parents could talk them out of it perhaps we have been asking the wrong question all along maybe instead of asking what motivates an individual to serve their country maybe we should be asking what would motivate an individual to not you can. Shift podcast is sponsored by New Res Home Mortgages and written and produced by me, author, speaker, and military clinical consultant, Corey Weathers. It is a supplemental leadership podcast for the book, Military Culture Shift, the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. Aimed to invite discussion in order to consider productive solutions for our nation's security and force of service members and their families. Copies of the book can be purchased on Amazon, militaryfamilybooks.com, and your other favorite retailers. Our closing song is Regrets by Moda Spira, and more information, including graphs, data, and other resources mentioned in the book, can be found on my website, goryweathers.com.